0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 12 of Mongols and Mamluks called The Death of Outremer. So we have reached the year 1291. This was a momentous year when the last crusader cities in the Middle East were captured by the Mamluks. Outremer was no more. The aims of the First Crusade, which had been to save Byzantium and to recapture Jerusalem, were finally thwarted by Islam. Or were they? In fact, Byzantium recovered Constantinople from the Crusaders in 1261, and a weak Byzantine state would last until 1453. As for the Crusaders, the concept of crusading continued in late medieval Europe, although it was, I think, very different from the original grand ambitions of the First Crusade. Instead, the Pope authorised a lot of so-called crusades against whoever he felt was his enemy, which included heretics like the Albigensians in France and the Hussites in Bohemia. The most meaningful crusade or conflict between Christians and Muslims outside the Holy Land was the so-called Reconquista in Spain, where the Spanish Christians gradually expelled the Muslims who had conquered most of the country in the 8th century. But this really lasted for nearly 800 years, Years, from the 8th century until the fall of the Muslim kingdom of Granada in southern Spain in 1492, and although it did become part of the crusading world after the launch of the First Crusade, it was, I think, a fundamentally different and very local conflict. 1492 was, of course, the same year that Christopher Columbus discovered America, which opened up a whole new chapter for European and world history. So I regard 1291 as the real end of the crusading concept that the First Crusade had created. And of course, since we've reached that point, is this now the end of the podcast? Well, I'm pleased to say that it's far from over yet, since I'd like to continue with a new mini series called The Last Crusades, which looks at what happened with the so called Crusades after 1291. And then, as I've mentioned before, I'm keen to get back to Byzantium and, in particular, the story of the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, which I think of as being, in many ways, the final end of the conflict that began with the Byzantine defeat by the Seljuk Turks at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, which was, of course, the starting point of this podcast. And after that, I'm delighted to say that I'm intending to do more history podcasts on other subjects around Roman, Byzantine and medieval history, so stay tuned for those. So, let's get on with this episode. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) In March 1291, the Mamluk army began to move against the Crusaders' capital at Acre. The Mamluk Sultan al-Ashraf's Preparations were careful and complete. Siege engines were collected from all over his dominions. So heavily laden was the army from Harma that it took a month in the wet, muddy weather to travel from Crack, where it paused to collect a huge catapult called the Victorious down to Acre. Nearly a hundred other machines had been constructed at Damascus and in Egypt. There was a second great catapult called the Furious and lighter mangonels of a particularly efficient type known as the Black Oxen. On the 6th of March, al-Ashraf left Cairo for Damascus, where he deposited his harem. On the 5th of April, he arrived before Acre with all his vast forces. Men spoke of Sixty thousand horsemen and a hundred and sixty thousand infantry. However exaggerated those numbers may be, his army far exceeded the forces that the Christians could muster. The news of the Mamluk Sultan's preparations had at last brought the people of Acre to realise their plight. Earnest appeals had been sent to Europe during the course of the winter, but with very little result. A few isolated knights had arrived during the previous autumn. Amongst them was the Swiss Otto of Granson, with some Englishmen sent by Edward I. The temple and the hospital gathered all their available men. The grand master of the Teutonic order, Burchard of Schwanden, made a bad impression by choosing to resign his office at this very moment, but his successor, Conrad of Feuchtwangen, summoned members of his fellow knights from Europe, Henry of Cyprus sent over Cypriot troops and his brother Amalric to command the defence and promised to follow himself with reinforcements. Every able-bodied citizen of Acre was enlisted to play his part, but even so the numbers were small. The whole civilian population of Acre comprised thirty to forty thousand people. In addition, there were less than a thousand knights or mounted sergeants and about fourteen thousand foot-soldiers, including the Italian pilgrims. The fortifications of the city were good, and they had recently been strengthened by King Henry's orders. There was now a double line of walls to protect the peninsula on which the city and its northern suburb, Montmoussat, were placed, and a single wall separated Acre from Montmoussat. The castle lay on this latter wall, close to its junction with the double walls. Many of them have been built at the expense of some distinguished pilgrims, such as the English Tower built by Edward I and the Tower of the Countess of Blois next to it. At the angle where the walls turned from running northward from the Bay of Acre to go westward towards the sea, there stood on the outer wall a great tower recently rebuilt by King Henry II opposite to the accursed tower on the inner wall. In front of King Henry's tower was a barbican built by King Hugh. The whole of this angle was considered to be the most vulnerable part of the defence. It was therefore entrusted to the king's own troops under his brother Amalric. On his right were the French and English knights under John of Grey and Otto of Granson, then the troops of the Venetians and the Pisans and those of the Commune of Acre. On his left, covering the walls of Montmuzar, were first the Hospitallers, then the Templars, each commanded by their Grand Master. The Teutonic knights supplemented the royal regiments by the accursed tower. On the Muslim side, the army of Hama, with which the historian Abul Feda was present in person, was stationed by the sea opposite to the Templars, the army of Damascus was opposite to the Hospitallers, and the Egyptian Mamluk army stretched from the end of the wall of Momuzar round to the Bay of Acre. The Sultan's tent was pitched not far from the shore, opposite to the Tower of the Legate Later, when all was over and lost, anger and grief gave rise to recriminations, the Christian chroniclers freely hurled accusations of cowardice at the garrison. But, in fact, at this supreme moment of their fate, the defenders of Outremer showed a courage and a loyalty that had been sadly absent in recent years. It may be that when shiploads of women, old men and children were dispatched to Cyprus at the beginning of the siege – some men of fighting age fled with them. It may be that some of the Italian merchants showed a selfish anxiety about their own property. Genoa indeed took no part in the struggle at all. It had been virtually excluded from Acre by the Venetians and had made its own treaty with the Mamluk Sultan. But the Venetians and Pisans fought valiantly. The latter were responsible for the construction of a great catapult that was the most effective of all the machines of the Christians the siege began on the sixth of april day after day the sultan's mangonels and catapults flung their stone or pottery containers filled with an explosive mixture at the walls of the city or over them into the town and his archers poured their arrows in clouds against the defenders on the galleries and tower platforms while his engineers prepared to move up to mine the crucial defences he was said to have a thousand engineers to use against each tower. The Christians still had command of the sea, and provisions of food were brought in regularly from Cyprus, but they were short of armaments, and they began to realise that there were not enough soldiers to man the walls adequately against the overwhelming numbers of the enemy. But there was no talk of surrender. One of their ships was fitted with a catapult, which did enormous damage in the Sultan's camp. On the night of 15th of April, when the moon was bright in the sky, the Templars, aided by Otto of Granson, made a sortie right into the camp of the men of Harma. The Muslims were taken by surprise, but many of the Templars tripped over the tent cords in the half-light and fell and were captured, and others were driven back with heavy losses into the town. Another sortie made by the Hospitallers a few nights later in total darkness failed completely as at once the Muslims lit their torches and fires. After this second check it was decided that sorties were too expensive in manpower but the abandonment of aggressive enterprise did harm to the Christian morale the feeling of hopelessness grew amongst them. Time was on the Muslim side. On the 4th of May, nearly a month after the siege began, King Henry arrived from Cyprus with the troops that he could muster, a 100 horsemen and 2,000 foot soldiers in 40 ships. With him was the Archbishop of Nicosia, John Turco of Ancona. It was probably because of illness that he had not come sooner. He was received with joy. As soon as he landed, he took command and put new vigour into the defence. But it was soon clear that these reinforcements were too few to make any difference to the outcome. In a last attempt to restore peace, the king sent two knights, the Templar William of Caffron and William of Villiers to the Mamluk Sultan to ask why he had broken the truce and to promise to redress any grievances. Al-Ashraf received them outside his tent, but before they could deliver their message, he asked them curtly if they had brought him the keys of the city. On their denial, he said that it was the place that he wanted. He was not interested in the fate of the inhabitants, and as a tribute to the king's courage in coming to fight when he was so young and ill. He would spare their lives if they surrendered to him. The envoys had hardly replied that they would be held as traitors if they promised capitulation when a catapult from the walls hurled a stone into the fringe of the group. Al-Afsharaf was furious and drew his sword to slay the ambassadors, but the emir Shujai restrained him, bidding him not to stain it with the blood of pigs. The knights were allowed to return to their king stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Meanwhile, the sultan's engineers were already beginning to mine the towers. On the 8th of May, the king's men decided that the Barbican of King Hugh was no longer tenable. They set fire to it and left it to collapse. In the course of the following week, the towers of the English and the Countess of Blois were undermined, and the walls by St Anthony's Gate and by the Tower of St Nicholas began to crumble. The new tower of Henry II held out until the 15th of May, when part of its outer wall came down. Next morning, the Mamluks forced their way into the ruin and the defence was forced back into the inner line of walls. That same day there was a concentrated attack on St. Anthony's Gate and only the gallantry of the Templars kept the enemy from passing into the city. The Marshal of the hospital, Matthew of Clermont, distinguished himself by his bravery. During the next day, the Muslims strengthened their hold on the outer wall and the Sultan ordered the general assault for the morning of Friday the 18th of May. The attack was launched on the whole length of the wall's from St. Anthony's Gate to the Patriarch's Tower by the bay. But the main effort of the Mamluks was against the accursed tower at the angle of the salient. The Sultan threw all his resources into the battle. His mangonels kept up an unceasing bombardment. The arrows of his archers fell almost in a solid mass into the city and regiment after regiment rushed at the defences led by white-turbaned emirs the noise was appalling. The assailants shouted their battle cries and trumpets and cymbals and the drums of 300 drummers on camelback urged them on. It was not long before the Mamluks forced their way into the accursed tower. The Syrian and Cypriot knights that were its garrison were pushed back westwards towards St. Anthony's Gate. There the Templars and Hospitallers came to their assistance, fighting together as if there had never been two centuries of rivalry between them. Matthew of Clermont. Desperately tried to lead a counter-attack to recover the tower, but though the two Grand Masters followed him, they could make no impression. Along the eastern wall of the city, John of Greilly and Otto of Granson held their own for some hours, but after the fall of the accursed tower, the enemy was able to pass along the crumbling walls and take possession of the Gate of St. Nicholas. The whole salient was lost, and the Muslims were well established inside the city. There was then fierce fighting in the streets. But nothing now could be done to save Acre. William of Beaujeu, Grand Master of the Temple, was mortally wounded in the fruitless counter-attack against the accursed tower. His followers carried him to the Temple building, where he died. Matthew of Clermont was with him, but returned to the battle. And to his death, the grandmaster of the hospital, John of Villiers, was wounded, but his men brought him down to the harbour and put him protesting on board a ship. The young king and his brother Amalric had already embarked. King Henry was later accused of cowardice in deserting the city, but there was nothing that he could have done, and it was his duty to his kingdom to avoid capture. On the eastern sector, John of grey was wounded, but Otto of Granson took control. He commandeered as many Venetian ships as he could find and placed John of Grey and all the soldiers that he could rescue on board, and himself was the last to join them. There was ghastly confusion on the quays. Soldiers and civilians, women and children amongst them, crowded into rowing boats, seeking to reach the galleys that lay off the shore. The aged patriarch, Nicholas of Hanape, who had been slightly wounded, was placed by his faithful servants in a small skiff, but out of charity he allowed so many refugees to climb in with him that the boat sank, and they were all drowned. There were some men who had the presence of mind to snatch hold of a boat. And and charge exorbitant fees from the desperate merchants and ladies on the quay. The Catalan adventurer Roger Flor, who had fought bravely as a Templar during the siege, took command of a Templar galley and founded his great fortune on the blackmail that he extorted from the noble women of Acre. The ships were far too few to rescue the fugitives. Soon the Mamluk soldiers penetrated right through the city, slaying everyone, old men, women and children alike. A few lucky citizens who stayed in their houses were taken alive and sold as slaves, but not many were spared. No one could tell the number of those that perished. The orders and the great merchant houses later tried to draw up lists of the survivors, but the fate of most of their members were unknown. Subsequent travellers to the east spoke of seeing renegade Templars living squalidly in Cairo, and of other Templars working as woodcutters by the Dead Sea. Some prisoners were freed and returned to Europe after nine or ten years of captivity. The slaves, who had been knights and their descendants, were said to have been treated with some respect by their masters. Many women and children disappeared forever into the harems of Mamluk emirs. Owing to the plentiful supply, the price of a girl dropped to a drachma piece in the slave market at Damascus, but the number of Christians that were slain was greater still. By the Night of the 18th of May, all Acre was in the Sultan's hands, except for the great building of the Templars, jutting out into the sea at the southwest point of the city. The surviving Templars had taken refuge there, together with a number of citizens of both sexes. For several days, its huge walls defied the enemy and ships that had landed refugees in Cyprus came back to its aid. After nearly a week, Al-Ashraf offered the Marshal of the Order, Peter of Sevre, to allow him to embark to Cyprus with all the people inside the fortress and with their possessions, if it were given up to him. Peter accepted the terms, and an emir and a hundred Mamluks were admitted into the fortress to supervise the arrangements, while the Sultan's flag was hoisted over the tower. But the Mamluks what? out of hand and began to molest and seize hold of the Christian women and boys. Furious at this, the knights fell on the Muslims and slaughtered them and pulled down the enemy flag ready to resist to the death. When night fell, Peter of Sevres sent the treasury of the order with its commander Tybalt Godin and a few non-combatants by boat to the castle at Sidon. Next day, Al-Ashraf, seeing the strength of the castle and the desperate courage of its garrison, offered the same honourable terms as before. Peter and a few companions went out under a safe conduct to discuss the surrender, but as soon as they reached the Sultan's tent they were seized and bound and promptly beheaded. When the defenders on the walls saw what had happened, they closed the gate again and fought on, but they could not prevent the Muslim engineers from creeping up to the walls and digging a great mine beneath them. On the 28th of May, the whole landward side of the building began to crack. Impatiently, Al-Ashraf threw two thousand Mamluks into the widening breach. Their weight was too much for the sagging foundations. As they fought their way in, the whole edifice came crashing down, killing defenders and assailants alike in its vast ruin. As soon as Acre was in his power, the Sultan set about its systematic destruction. He was determined that it should never again be a spearhead for Christian aggression in Syria. The houses and bazaars were pillaged, then burnt. The buildings of the orders and the fortified towers and castles were dismantled. The city walls were left to disintegrate. When the German pilgrim Ludolf of Suchem passed by some 40 years later, only a few wretched peasants lived amongst the ruins of the once splendid capital of Outremer. One or two churches still stood, not wholly destroyed, but the fine doorway of the Church of St Andrew had been taken to ornament the mosque built in Cairo to honour the victorious Sultan, and amidst the crumbling walls the Church of St Dominic, the tomb of the Dominican Jordan of Saxony was untouched as the Muslims had peered in and found his body uncorrupted. The remaining Crusader cities soon shared the same fate of Acre. On the 19th of May, when most of Acre was in his hands, al-Ashraf sent a large contingent of troops to Tyre. It was the strongest city of the coast, impregnable against an enemy that lacked command of the sea. In the past, its walls had twice thwarted Saladin himself. A few months earlier, the Princess Margaret, to whom it belonged, had handed it over to her nephew, the king's brother Amalric. But it's garrison. was small, and as soon as the enemy approached, Amalric's warden Adam of Caffran lost his nerve and sailed away to Cyprus, abandoning the city without a struggle. At Sidon, the Templars determined to make a stand. Tybald Godin was there with the treasure of the order and the surviving knights had elected him Grand Master to succeed William of Beaujeu. They were left alone for a month, then a huge Mamluk army came up under the Emir Shujai. The knights were too few to hold the town, so they retired with many of the leading citizens to the Castle of the Sea, built on an island rock a hundred yards from the shore, and recently refortified. fortified Set sail for Cyprus to raise troops for the castle's assistance, but once that he was there he did nothing, either from cowardice or despair. The Templars in the castle fought bravely, but when the Mamluk engineers began to build a causeway across the sea, they gave up hope and sailed away up the coast to Tortosa. On the fourteenth of July, Shujai entered the castle and ordered its destruction. A week later Shujai appeared before Beirut. Its citizens had hoped that the treaty made between the Lady Sceva and the Sultan would preserve them from attack. When the emir bade the leaders of the garrison to come and pay their respects to him, they therefore anxiously complied, only to find themselves made prisoner. Without its leaders, the garrison could not contemplate defense. Its members took to their ships and fled, carrying with them the relics from the cathedral. The Mamluks entered the city on the 31st of July. Its walls and the castle of the Ebelins were pulled down, and the cathedral turned into a mosque. Soon afterwards, the Mamluk Sultan occupied Haifa without opposition on the 30th of July, and his men burnt the monasteries on Mount Carmel and slew the monks. There still remained the two Templar castles at Tortosa and Athlete, but in neither was the garrison strong enough to face a siege. Tortosa was evacuated on the 3rd of August and Athlit on the 14th. All that now was left to the Templars was the island fortress of Ruad, some two miles off the coast opposite Tortosa. There they maintained their hold for 12 more years, only quitting the island in 1303 when the whole future of the order began to be in doubt. For some months, the Sultan's troops marched up and down the coastlands, carefully destroying anything that might be of value to the Crusaders should they ever attempt another landing. Orchards were cut down, irrigation systems put out of order. The only castles that were left standing were those that were back from the coast, like Mount Pilgrim at Tripoli and Markab on its high mountain. Along the sea there was desolation. The peasants of those once rich farms saw their steads destroyed and sought refuge in the mountains. Those of Crusader origin hastened to merge themselves with the natives, and the native Christians were treated little better than slaves. The old easy tolerance of Islam was gone. Embittered by the long religious wars, the victors had no mercy for the the infidel the crusader's legacy was one of hatred and conflict <music> And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll start a new subseries called The Last Crusades. See you then.